For the first time, the woman felt fear, though she did not know why. Adrenaline shot through her trunk and her limbs, generating a tingling heat and urging her to swim faster. She guessed that she was 50 yards from shore. She could see the line of white foam where the waves broke on the beach. She saw the lights in the house, and for a comforting moment, she thought she saw someone pass by one of the windows. The fish was about 40 feet from the woman, off to the side, where it turned suddenly to the left, dropped entirely below the surface, and, with two quick thrusts of its tail, was upon her. At first, the woman thought she had snagged her leg on a rock or a piece of floating wood. There was no initial pain, only one violent tug on her right leg. She reached down to touch her foot, treading water with her left leg to keep her head up, feeling in the blackness with her left hand. She could not find her foot. She reached higher on her leg, and then she was overcome by a rush of nausea and dizziness. Her groping fingers had found a nub of bone and tattered flesh. She knew that the warm, pulsing flow over her fingers and the chill water was her own bud. Pain and panic struck together. The woman threw her head back and screamed a guttural cry of terror. The fish had moved away. It swallowed the woman's limb without chewing. Bones and meat passed down the massive gullet in a single spasm. Now the fish turned again, homing on the stream of blood flushing from the woman's femoral artery, a beacon as clear and true as a lighthouse on a cloudless night. This time the fish attacked from below. It hurled up under the woman, jaws agape. The great conical head struck her like a locomotive, knocking her up out of the water. The jaws snapped shut around her torso, crushing bones and flesh and organs into jelly. The fish, with the woman's body in its mouth, smashed down on the water with a thunderous splash, spewing foam and blood and phosphorescence in a gaudy shower. Good evening, and welcome to another episode of Black Ink Red Film. I am your host, Stephen, and with me tonight, as always, is... The other Stephen. Thank you all for being here for episode number 13 of Black Ink Red Film. Are we doing Friday the 13th to celebrate our 13th episode? Had we planned things out much better earlier on, we would have. (laughs) But no, we are in fact not doing Friday the 13th. Where will we be visiting tonight, Mr. Payne? Well, first of all, to our friends in Poland, let me say, Shishe. <laughs> okay. That out of the way. Um, tonight, we're going to Amity Island mm. on the East Coast, a place that looks suspiciously like Martha's Vineyard. And, um, well, rumors are there have been some issues with uh, the beach and something happening in the water, some incidents. So, uh we're going to be taking a look at something called, um, was a Jaws. Jaws. Yes, tonight is Jaws. We will be talking about the novel by Peter Benchley. We'll be talking about the iconic film by Mr. Spielberg. And then we'll be talking about other novels and movies and spinoffs that came with it. But and, I, and I'm really excited about this. So those of you who know me even reasonably well know that Jaws the movie is my all-time favorite movie. Jaws is actually what got me to love film and got me to love writing. So this is a, and over the next couple of weeks or so, as we get ready to publish this, 
You'll see me putting things on the Facebook page about some of the Jaws memorabilia and original art I have. So this is going to be an exciting episode. I really look forward to it. Yeah, a little behind the scenes. Um, the Stevenese place, his entire front room is filled with Jaws memorabilia. So we'll have to make sure some of those photos get up on the uh, on the pages. It started out as the Jaws wall and now it's like the, well, that's a whole lot of room you've dedicated to this film, isn't it? That's right. All right. And so with that, let us get into it. So tonight we're going back to the old format. We we took a brief detour with Psycho to talk about the film first, but we're going to talk about Jaws the Novel, written by Mr. Peter Benchley. And I will say I read Jaws the Novel when it first came out, and I think I was 10 or thereabouts, <laughs> um, and I didn't remember a thing about it. And reading it now, I enjoyed it way more than I thought I was going to. I thought I was going to just read some sort of hack action novel. And it was really way more enjoyable than I expected. It was obviously very different from the movie. We will talk a lot about that. That's the whole reason we do this podcast. There are not for the money. Yeah, that's right. But there are... In terms of it being a thriller and some good character drama, I think it hits all the notes that you would want out of a summer action thriller like that. It's an interesting... So Jaws the novel was written back in 74. And it's an interesting... I agree with you. First of all, I agree with you. When I first read the novel, I had seen the movie a hundred times beforehand. And the novel was like, eh, it's not uh, good. And really, it's, it's technically speaking, the well... We'll get into that later. The novel, in many ways, is not as good as the movie, but after you've read the novel a couple more times again, you realize that it wasn't intended to be the same type of story. And this is, again, why our podcast exists. Right. To talk about where the same story across different media may take on a different tone. If you don't believe us, go back and listen to our episode on The Shining is a really good example of that. Jaws the novel was really sort of the kind of story of its time. In the 60s and 70s, you had a lot of stories that were mel- were kind of melodramas centered on a few people with checkered pasts or problematic situations going on in a community, and then one pretty significant or extraordinary circumstance erupted, be it a natural disaster or in this case a giant shark killing tourists that brought them together and or helped further expose their their sins and their foibles. Jaws the novel actually is a really fun novel. It, it's not without its issues, but it's it turns out to be a very, very good read, and it's easy to see why it did become a bestseller pretty yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, what, what struck me about it is you have to think about Jaws the novel, and I try not to get too much into the history of books when we're in the podcast because then we can just get down so many rat holes but a lot of action books i read now especially some of the later as an example michael crichton books a lot of the michael crichton novels will read like he's writing it almost like a screenplay and jaws the novel was written i mean jaws the movie and we'll talk about that in 20 minutes or so really changed the movie industry forever tentpole movies and action movies and whatnot so it's still very much a character-driven... So let's talk about what's similar. So Jaws, the novel, is very much the story of Brody. So Brody, Chief Brody. And it's his story about um, being a small-town sheriff in Amity Island. 
and having to deal with this shark threat and the forces that he has to contend with of like the town not wanting to um, publicize it, not wanting to close beaches, not wanting to do all the right safety elements, even though he wants to do it. He's also struggling with class identity. His wife comes from money. The tourists that come from out of town have money. So he's feeling a little bit of, I would say, insecurities about that. At some point, he starts feeling insecurities about his wife and her fidelity and his relationship with her. And so there's the shark and the other characters are really there to tell Brody's story of him overcoming all of that, um, his own insecurities by killing the shark. Um, so it's really his redemption tale, which is if, if you were to ask people what they think about sharks, most people would say it's a shark movie. And yeah, there is a shark. shark the shark in the novel is really more the MacGuffin for Brody than anything else in my mind. Yeah, and again, it kind of goes what, and this is not in any way a knock. This is sort of how a lot of the fiction took place in novels and I think movies back at the time, especially if you look in movies, you look back at the Irwin Allen films like The Poseidon Adventure in the Airport. These were character melodramas. And in in Jaws' case, Benchley does a wonderful job in a number of scenes with Brody and the discomfort of trying to fit into this community and having a wife who maybe, frankly you know, above his pay grade, if you will, and not real happy with her station in life. There's a lot of fantastic character stuff. The whole shark drama really becomes the, however you want to describe, I mean, it's the inciting incident, but it's also really the incident that forces these characters to come to terms with who they are, Mm -hmm. what their issues are. It's really, and in the novel, it's interesting because there are a number of suggestions in the novel that this may be, a punishment by God that the yeah. shark existing, that there may be That's some true. history even going back to the Salem witch trials, very subtly indicated. But this is what a lot of the disaster films and dramas and, and melodramas were at the time. They were about, there were character driven pieces heavy on the melodrama, but had one really quote unquote sexy inciting incident that kind of pulled all these things together. And from that standpoint, for whatever flaws it has, Benchley does a really good job of creating that with the novel Jaws. Right. Jaws, if you did it today, I'm, and we'll, we may talk about this more later, I have one of those people who's vehemently against the idea of doing a quote-unquote Jaws remake. If you were to do a Jaws miniseries on TV, on streaming, on Tubi or one of those things <laughs> that the kids watch or listen to these days, and did it as a miniseries based strictly on the novel, it might actually still work on its own terms. Yeah. Because I think you could still do the novel in that kind of fashion and have a, a pretty good a pretty good thing, even though it's still carrying an awful lot of weight with the title. Right, right. So the, the novel will... I'll try to go through some of the high points that I remember... It's still got the three because I, I presume that like 90% of our listeners have seen the movie and not read the novel, but I could be wrong. Write us in. Let us know. Yeah. It's got Brody as the main character. He is got his wife, Ellen. Uh, halfway through the novel, we are introduced to the young Matt Hooper, who I don't know if it's Matt Hooper or it's Hooper. It's, I think it's still Matt Hooper. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, 20-something, young, handsome would probably be played by Liam Neeson if they were to do it today based on his descriptions in the novel. Liam Neeson. 
one of the niece Liam Liam Neeson's like seventy. No, who's 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 Thor? You mean like Liam Hemsworth? Hemsworth, one of the Hemsworths. Okay, I was gonna say Liam Neeson would probably be even too old to play Quint now. <laughs> he might be Quint, know. right? Exactly. <laughs> actually, he Hems- might be a good Quint now that I think about it. <laughs> That's true. He actually would be. <laughs> we'll get two of the Liams in it. Um, one is Quint. One is Hooper. Actually, Hooper doesn't show up till very late in the book, and I I think what's well, Quint doesn't show up. Till well, that's what I meant. Who did I just say? Well, Hooper. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Quint. Man, um, yeah, Quint doesn't show up till late in the book. Vaughn plays a more interesting role. Yeah, so Mayor, Mayor, Vaughn, Mayor Vaughn. So we all know Mayor Vaughn. You yell Barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell Shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the Fourth of July. Mayor Vaughn in the book is much more posh. He seems more of a polished. He comes from money. He he plays effectively the same role in that he's trying to downplay the shark and he doesn't want it to, you know, he, he understands the effect it's going to have on tourism. But it just doesn't feel as campy and over the top. It feels a little bit more political reading it in the novel. Well, there's clearly more backstory because he's indebted to the mob and he has some other issues happening so we kind of better understand his yeah. motivation arguably better understand his motiva- motivation in the novel right right he's definitely finance it's it's shadowy but it, there's definitely some inference that he has people that he is answering to that do not want the beaches closed but then the main character or the the other main character is and he de- I don't even think they call it the shark until almost the very end of the book it's the great fish Yes. Who happens to be eating a lot of the people. So the scene with Chrissy, Chrissy and her boyfriend make love on the beach and then she goes into the water and she doesn't come back out. When that body is found, Brody sends out Ben. Who's the guy with the boat? Ben Gardner. Ben Gardner. So Ben Gardner is also in it. And this is where I I would say the first third to half of the book is a lot about Brody dealing with his guilt because now he knows there's a shark out there and he's trying to warn people. He's putting up signs that he's being prevented from doing that. And then he is really responsible for Ben Gardner's death, which is different from the movie. And he feels very responsible for the Kintner boy's death. So the Kintner boy also gets eaten up in the novel as well. And there's actually an elderly man who gets killed Mm. shortly the same day that the Kintner boy is killed. This is not in the movie. Yeah. Um, an elderly man is attacked by the shark. I think um, Deputy Hendricks tries to rescue him and winds up basically pulling off the guy's arm in the process. And by the time they get the old man in, he's he's past the point of being saved. But that's, yeah, the same day, apparently, the shark attacked this elderly man, then when it attacked and killed the Kintner boy. Right, right. So some of the big differences in the novel that that struck me is... Ellen's character, Ellen Brody, um, the chief's wife, is actually way more fleshed out in this novel than she is in any of the subsequent novels or movies. And that's saying something because she's the main character in Jaws the Revenge. Which is not a great bragging point. (laughs) Spoiler alert. I'd rather be the main character in a home enema kit commercial. (laughs) It is is terrible. But it's, it's interesting. She has her own pathos in this novel with she comes from money but she fell in love with brody and now she's in this small town living paycheck to paycheck and she sees and and they're always faced with these tourists that come in with money matt hooper comes in with money 
who is the 10-year younger brother of her ex-boyfriend. Spoiler alert, they end up hooking up. Brody does not find out about it, but he suspects it. There's a lot of inference to that, but it's, it's a whole subplot, her affair with Matt Hooper. Vaughn is different. And then, of course, there's the three, Quint, Hooper, and Brody going out. Well, and Quint, shark. and Quint really is an underdeveloped character. He has a, a great introductory scene. Hey, Quint, said the man with the newspaper. Did you see about that shark that killed those people? I see it, said the captain. You think we'll run into that shark? Nope. How do you know? I know. Suppose we went looking for him. We won't. Why not? We've got a slick going. We'll stay put. The man shook his head and smiled. Boy, wouldn't that be some sport. Fish like that ain't a sport, said the captain. How far is Amity from here? Down the coast a ways. Well, if he's around here somewhere, you might run into him one of these days. We'll find one another, all right. But not today. And then he really doesn't show up until the big... The interesting thing here, too, is that everything you said is accurate. Um, the third act is different, including, obviously, a couple quick key things with the third act versus the movie. One, well, spoiler alert, we'll throw that out there. Hooper gets killed in the book, does not get killed in the movie. Right. And even then, we don't have any real resolution between what happened with he and Brody's wife or anything like that. Hooper almost blurts it out and it's almost like Brody knows that it happened, but he doesn't want it confirmed. Yeah. So he's struggling with that. There's a lot of, there's some confrontations on the, sh on, on the Orca, which Quint winds up being amused by. Right. But so that's a major, I mean, the whole affair subplot, Hooper gets killed. The Not only does he get killed because he gets eaten by the shark. Right, right, right. And then right. Brody shoots him accidentally in the neck as right, he's going right. down. But yeah. that, at that point, it's collateral damage. Right, right, right. But then the orca winds up going back to shore to regroup. Then they go out the next day. Now, Quint all of a sudden becomes the centerpiece. This becomes his personal mission. Yeah. The third act, and of course, the whole ending, the shark in this film drowns via Moby Dick taking Quint with it versus the movie where he eats Quint and gets blown up. The third act of the novel, I think, is actually kind of weak. Mm -hmm. Where the third act of the the film is a master... Is, well, the whole movie is a masterpiece. The, the third act of the novel really is kind of a letdown. It takes... Brody basically becomes almost an irrelevant character, which is a problem. Quint takes center stage and then the whole final action just kind of in suddenly and unimpressively so it's it's kind of like the third act of the film is exactly how you would draw out the third act of any action horror film it's a template the third act of jaws the novels just in my opinion kind of a letdown well and i think that's because the third act of the novel is the other character we didn't mention was the um journalist the guy who owns the newspaper oh sure sure meadows yeah and Really, the big climax of the third act is, and again, it's it's kind of weird because they do keep coming back each night. They don't, like Spielberg did it right by keeping them out on exactly. the Exactly, yeah. But they come back and right before they go out the last time, the journalist Meadows shows Brody the newspaper piece that he's about to publish. And it's talking about Chief Brody was right all along. He's been trying to save the town. He's been doing all this stuff. He is he is the person that we should be thanking for keeping the town safe. And so he's vindicated. And so Brody's vindication through this is really the highlight. And then he goes out to obviously face the shark, which 
is very anticlimactic. So I would say that's almost like that's the real climax of the novel for Brody. Yeah, it's I, it's it almost, and I know this doesn't necessarily happen in writing so much in movies. It almost feels like Benchley was in a hurry to fin- finish the novel, and yeah. he went on a cheap with a conclusion. There's still some nice moments in it, but for the most part, the third act really is a letdown because he, up to that point, paints a really good story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Benchley clearly knows and loves the water. He knows sharks. He knows seafaring, or I, I would say sea seaside town life you know yeah you, you get it yeah. you the amity island feels really well developed yes. in that it it is interesting it's hard to read jaws the novel without like the the shadow of the film looming over it at this point so yeah i remember 1974 which has been quite a while ago my parents i remember they actually bought the book because we're at a bookstore and they bought the book and they actually read it before the movie i never got a chance to do so mm-hmm. so they were among the you know those who got to because there actually was very limited the book was published in i think february of 74 the movie hit theaters like summer of 75 oh wow so there was not a whole i mean the, the minute the damn thing hit the book hit the public well it also helps that david brown who is one of the producers of jaws his wife, Helen Gurley Brown, was like one of, the, I think, the chief editor on the New York Times. So he had an immediate connection to what was what was a hot mm. novel at the time. So they jumped on, Universal jumped on Jaws almost immediately as soon as it started selling a few copies. Nice. So there was incredibly little turnaround time. So, you it, you know, a lot of people probably didn't get a chance to read the book before they saw the movie. Yeah. So I would actually, I would say to our listeners, Jaws the Novel is worth reading. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I would, um, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that about any of the sequels we're about to discuss, but... Well, that's on you. Yeah. We'll hit a few <laughs> of the other things. I mean, there is some, like Stephen E. was just talking about, it was written in the mid-70s. There is some stuff that has not aged well. I know we don't like to use that expression, but there's like some ugly, a little bit of ugliness in it from... Some of the love scenes are really awkward and some of the talk about race. Well, in all fairness, I haven't aged well either. That's true, nor have I. I'm going to pause here while we do something with the cat. Puffy is now back upstairs. Yeah, I mean, folks, uh, we're going to apologize in advance. So Puffy is a 14-year-old ragdoll cat, and over the holidays, through reasons too hard to go into, difficult to explain, he got hooked on the catnip. And he, he he's get really just for Christmas. He did. And he's, I don't know who gave it to him per se, but he's had an issue with it ever since. And he's, um, we're trying to work through it. It's so sorry if you hear him yowling, but you know, he he's needs his fix going through his DT and we're, yeah. we're right now heating up some pizza rolls for him <laughs> so he can watch SpongeBob and have his nip. That's right. Okay. So with that, anything else we want to say about the novel? Let's see what else other tidbits I got here. The other thing that was kind of an interesting throwaway, just kind of like caught me, I, I found interesting, was that um, Brody has three sons in the novel, <laughs> which barely make an appearance. Their names are different than how they are in the movie and subsequent films. So just kind of like, oh, yeah, I guess we got to make him a family man as well as part of all this. Well, they're completely irrelevant in the novel. They're basically, they're well, yeah, they're completely irrelevant. They um, are, yeah. In the movie, obviously, they find a way to integrate them, but... That and a couple other things Benchley sets up then doesn't follow up well with. You know, a lot of the stuff that Benchley does well with, and I think he does some great stuff with 
with Brody, Hooper, and Ellen Brody. And then Quint is underdeveloped. There's like a character who shows up at a bar or something one night, Michael, and yeah. who makes some comment. And then nothing other ever happens with that character or that string. So, um, again, it's, it's a good novel. I recommend reading it, but there are some holes and there are some flaws in it. And if you're a fan of the movie, you come to realize where this is as great an example of any movie adaptation of a novel of where the filmmakers made the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Of, of pulling out what, what made the novel interesting and turning it into just like great movie material. This is, it really just speaks to Spielberg's genius, which we will talk about now. Stephen E. Yes. You have a, uh, a special place in your heart for Jaws the film. What would you like to say about Jaws the film? I mean, and, you know, I. this is one of those subjects I actually could get emotional about, so I'm going to try to measure myself here. Jaws means so much to me. Jaws was the movie that made me grow to love movies. It, grow, it um, got me to love storytelling. It got me to love the ocean in both a fear and respect. I've actually owned pet sharks in mm. my life. The, um, it, um, it's a perfect movie. It's my favorite movie. I rank it as the greatest horror film of all time. It's obviously the AFI. It's in the AFI 100, top 100 films of all time. And in many ra- ways is a perfect motion picture, a perfect thriller. Mm-hmm. We're almost 50 years into its existence at this point, and it still has not been equaled. It hasn't been topped. It still is the gold standard for that genre and for what horror films should be. Um, I don't know. You know, that's that's the, uh, the, that's the essence of it. It's when I saw it, I was probably eight or nine when I first saw it. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the theater, you know, and I remember when... You know, when the, the title came on screen, the theater applauded. I remember the reactions people had when Ben Gardner's head appeared at the jump scares in the film. Oh, yeah. At the, we're going to need a bigger boat. I remember the applause that broke out when the shark blew up and when the titles, the final titles ran. And I just remember, this is the greatest thing in the world. This is why movies are great. Mm-hmm. And no experience I've had has ever equaled sitting and watching Jaws for the first time. I've, I've watched this movie maybe a hundred times since then. I can't not watch it even if it shows up during channel surfing. Right, right. And it still holds up. It's still impervious to time. The only movie you really need to study as far as great storytelling goes, in my opinion, there are other great films, obviously. Yeah. But if you want to know how to make a thriller, this is all you ever need to really research and study. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a masterpiece. We, I say that a lot on this film, but on this podcast, but that's because we don't we try not to watch the schlock. Well, I watch a lot of schlock, yeah. but <laughs> and we will talk about some of the sequels. We will definitely have schlock in this discussion. We're not going to be prejudiced. Yeah, there's so much going right in this movie. Obviously, the action, the suspense, the score. The interplay between the three leads with Quint, Hooper, and uh, and Brody, and Brody, like that that scene on the boat, you know, the Indianapolis dialogue scene, 
where they're exchanging scars. There's just so many bits of untopped film gold in in here. Uh, it's it's really hard to it's you could just go by like frame by frame and talk about why every scene works in that movie. There's no dead space. Everything clicks together. You're seeing the the acting on all three of those actors. I mean, in all of them, like even Vaughn and Mrs. Kintner and everybody just everybody just pulls it together to make that a perfect film. Well, and where this I here's so here's some credit that I don't think when you talk about the greatness of this film, here's some credit I don't think gets out there enough. I'm going to go back and I'm start with Richard Zanuck and David Brown, the two producers of the film. These guys were young producers at the time the film was made. They would I think they also produced The Sting. So these guys were great producers as it turns out. This mm-hmm. you're not getting any better than these two guys. When they took this project on, so Universal had this pegged as just a B movie. Yeah, and again, it was just sort of picked up because Brown's David Brown's wife was the editor. She found the book. They bought the rights to it. This could have easily been, and it could have been easily easily been a schlock film. It also could have easily fallen into the formula of the thrillers of that era. It could have been like, and this is. I'm going to bring out an incredibly obscure reference, but y'all can look it up later if you want to. This could have been like the 1954 film The Naked Jungle with Charlton Heston, mm-hmm. which is basically this jungle-based melodrama about a man with his mail-order wife, and he's a jerk, and she's trying to learn. And oh, by the way, by the third act, it turns out there's a, a massive army of soldier ants going to overtake Africa. <laughs> and it's an okay movie, but basically that's what it was. That could have been what Jaws was. But Zanuck and Brown had the had the vision to say, no, you know what? We don't want like we don't want this to be like every Hollywood thriller. We want this to be something new and special. They were looking for a young upstart filmmaker to make this film. So they had a couple guys. They had one guy who the interview Dick Mitchell, I think it was, interviewed for the job, and he bombed out of the interview when he described the opening scene and how the whale is gonna come and eat the woman. And you're like, you didn't even read the book, did you, dumbass? <laughs> oh, so he's out. So they turned to this young upstart, Steven Spielberg, I believe the name was, mm-hmm. who was sort of a protege of the studio head, Sid Scheinberg. He had done some night gallery episodes. He had done a pretty much a bomb of a heist thriller that had Warren Beatty and Goldie Hawn in it called Sugarland Express. And he had done what still may hold up as the greatest TV thriller of all time, Duel. Right. If you haven't seen Duel, go watch Duel, like, right now. They took a chance on this kid, because they knew he might bring a new vision to it. And what Spielberg did early on, he was 26 or 27 at the time. So let's put this in perspective. He was 26 or 27 in 1974, the time this would have been getting going. What would he have grown up watching? He would have grown up watching the films, the sci-fi films of the 50s. He would have grown up watching The Thing from Another World. Mm-hmm. Them. It came from outer space. These thrillers, which all had certain, which most of which were produced by Universal, interestingly enough, these all had certain things in, in common. They were incredibly efficiently told, extremely well-acted and written thrillers that because of special effects limitations and technology could not do a whole lot with the monsters, so they had to be really cute about how they delivered the goods as far as, like, the payoff goes. Right. Those would have been his influence. And guess what Jaws turned out to be? 
So Jaws was not the kind of melodrama with a shark in it drama that Peter Benchley told. It really turned out to be a 50s-style sci-fi thriller, action-horror thriller, with modern technology and a impeccable cast. Jaws the production was a train wreck, by all accounts. Every possible thing went way over budget. It went way over schedule. Spielberg was again fired 20 times. Shaw, Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss were going to kill each other every day. Shaw was not even sober through most of the shooting, for all accounts. But he pulled it together. And at the end of the day, through luck, determination, whatever else, and of course the vision of this great filmmaker, you, you wound up with this film. I mean, you could not... People talk about, well, Jaws shouldn't be... A film like Jaws, if you really break it down, it shouldn't be that hard to recreate something that good. And I think it was our buddies at CinemaSense who, in their Honest Trailers review, it says, well, all you need is a, you know, an efficient script, an impeccable cast, a great director. Oh, yeah, that's actually kind of hard to do, Score, isn't it? Score, editing. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. well... Editing is a big thing. Verna Fields is the other hero. She won an Oscar for best editing on the film. Yeah. And her work is among the best you'll ever see. This is a perfect storm coming together, making a perfect movie. And you cannot recreate that. Yeah. There's actually not even in this genre, a, in my opinion, maybe Alien, but there's not really a great close second in this genre to what Jaws was. Jaws the movie was. Yeah. So yeah, I and and I agree with you on on all of that. Jaws is definitely in my top ten. I don't know if it's my favorite, but definitely you know how I feel about Alien. So I would definitely put Alien in that in that ballpark. But yeah, it's like it is a perfect film, right? Yeah, it's and and you know we talk about well this didn't work or that didn't work, and in in our podcast it's like this movie hits on all cylinders. There's not a thing I would change about this film, and so. I guess the interesting part about this podcast, like, so what did Spielberg change, right? So we mm-hmm. dropped all the nonsense about the affair with um, Ellen and Hooper. He focused it on the three leads and their relationship with the shark and how they were going to overcome adversity. Hooper, smart college guy, has the money, has all the fancy equipment. Right. Quint, just like skeptical of all of that. And he has to come around and actually finally realize in the end of the film that maybe Hooper will have the only way to defeat this shark. Brody dealing with his own guilt of trying to just do what's right for the town. It's, it's a, it's just like perfect positioning between all of these elements of storytelling. Well, you know, what's funny too, is like, again, do you talk about perfect storms and someone posted a, a, you know, one of those, what could have been posters, you know, who, what the original cast of this was, could have been, Hmm. Charlton Heston, Jan Michael Vincent, and Lee Marvin. That could have been the original. In fact, to the day of his death, Charlton Heston was still angry at Spielberg for not casting him as Brody. I could see Lee Marvin as, well, I mean, it's hard now, but I could see Lee Marvin as Quint. Well, Um, Lee Marvin basically, Lee Marvin was offered it, and apparently he came back and said, read the script, and said, you know what, I'd rather go fishing than make a movie about fishing. <laughs> and then Sterling Hayden was another one who was supposed to be Quint, but he had tax and weather issues. Well, Robert Shaw was high maintenance. He had tax. They had to, like, fly him back and forth to Canada mm-hmm. and whatever else because of his... But anyway, there again, there was a lot of... There were a lot of great happy accidents around this whole the whole film that are amazing again that would be hard to recreate but well the other thing around that spielberg did as legend lore has it after he read the script the the book 
he said, I don't like any of these characters. I'm, I'm rooting for the shark. Yeah. So, because really, if you look back at the book, there aren't, Brody is semi-sympathetic, but the other characters really are not, they're either not drawn out well enough or they're not very likable characters. Oh, yeah. In fact, we should, to jump back to the novel yeah. a bit for, like, one of the great scenes of the novel, one of the most uncomfortable scenes I've ever read in a novel is Ellen finds a time to like re relive some of like her past life. So she decides to have a dinner party yeah. and she also wants to flirt with Matt yeah. Hooper and Brody is getting drunk and being belligerent and just being an idiot. And it's like reading that is so cringy of his behavior as, as he's going through it. And it's like some of the best writing. Cause I'm like going, Oh my God, I feel so bad for everybody there. Well, you can, you can actually make the argument as strange as that maybe actually be the best chapter in the book. Yeah. It's it was, actually impeccably written. Yeah. That, that was, and it actually it's a, it would have been a great cinematic scene too. Yeah. Um, again, it would not have worked for what Spielberg wanted to achieve, but again, that was in your, in your Netflix li- version of this where yes. we have more time. Yes. That would have been yeah. a great, great scene. Benchley had a good ear and eye for stuff, so I mean, I don't want to downplay him as a writer. Right. He right. actually did a terrific job with this. But um, again, Spielberg knew exactly what he wanted to focus on, what the critical well, thing was. Well, Spielberg's telling a shark movie. He's not telling Brody's well, again, story. He's telling the 50s sci fi version of. If you had made Jaws in the 50s, it would have looked like this. Yeah. Again, it's like his reference point would have been those films he grew up watching. Right. And right. he realized what he saw in the novel is the important stuff, and that's the film he made. Yeah. Today, again, if you had four or six hours or whatever of, of Netflix or HBO miniseries, you might want to tell this the whole story of the novel. Or not. But yeah. uh, it would actually be interesting to see what someone would do if they did like the full the full novelization, the full novel version of it. Right. Uh, anything else you want to say? I mean, there's so many, we could talk about individual scenes. I think most of their viewers have seen it. I think the jump scares of that movie are first rate. You know, that the head coming out. Oh gosh. That Archer's head. I, 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 to this day, that scene still traumatizes me. (laughs) I'm not kidding. When I saw that, that's the scene that gave me nightmares more than anything else. I mean, there was just the autopsy scene where they're autopsying oh, that that's not in the novel. No, when no. They go and they cut the shark open and they're digging out its stomach contents. It's another classic scene. Well, the whole everything about Quint in the movie is so better. So oh, for his example, intro, right. Yeah. Well, his intro. But all, well, the intro in the book is actually really well done. I actually like the way yeah. the intro in the book. But in the movie, this is, again, where brilliance came into play with the film. So the fact that in the movie they built this backstory of Quint having this having been on the Indianapolis mm-hmm. was something was not in the novel and was strictly to the movie and led to that amazing speech that Quint has on the Orca, which to this day, it's interesting, there's a lot of legend lore around who wrote it. So Carl Gottlieb, who was the, original, was the screenwriter of credit, John Milius was also a screenwriter. He supposedly had it. Most people believe now that Robert Shaw, who was a decorated playwright, along with being an actor, he wrote his own version of it. Oh, interesting. And so allegedly the version on screen is what who, what Shaw really wrote himself. Hmm. But that's one of the most spectacular. And that, if any, Quint is actually my favorite character in any movie in the history of movies. Hmm. I love Quint beyond measure. That scene and that 
that everything they did with his character in that movie is amazing. Again, this is just like, if you want to know how to make a movie, there's two movies I recommend, Jaws and Rocky. Mm. If you follow those two films structurally, you should know how to make a movie. Now, whether you can pull it off or not, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, good luck with that. But um, those are two movies you can study over and over again and realize, oh, yeah, that's how you make a great movie. Mm-hmm. In the early days of the podcast, we used to talk about the cultural significance of these films. For me, with Jaws, the theme to Jaws, the dun dun dun, is, <laughs> is the Jaws theme is probably one of the most iconic scores ever. Well, John Williams is another one of those heroes of the film. Um, I mean, his score, which I remember the story was when he first played it for Spielberg, Spielberg thought it was a joke. Oh, really? Yeah, he thought because he played Dun, 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 Dun. Yeah, whatever. What's the real music? And Williams played more of it and eventually clicked. But the score was critical because it made up for the lack of them being able to show the shark on screen. Yeah, that's Because as we know, the mechanic. I mean, everyone who knows the movie knows the mechanical shark was a turd and barely ever worked. And so they had to really work around the shark not being on screen. Um, Williams' score helped compensate for it. Now, if you that want to and know the barrels yeah. and the barrels yeah. and, and Verna Fields editing and whatever else. Right. In fact, if you want to go back and watch the movie, and if you don't know this already, here's a clue. Like there's this one scene where those kids fake, a sh- you know, have the cardboard fin, they fake being the shark. Notice that the Jaws theme doesn't play when that fins on mm. screen. So the Williams score has, be- I mean, it's the greatest score. One of the greatest scores in the history of the world but and you think he won an Oscar for it? I mean, yeah, it's as important as any movie as any score. I tell you what, if you go out to a local, if maybe not so much now because the kids don't know anything, but twenty years ago, <laughs> if you'd got out to the local swimming pool in your community, took it a boombox when they had those <laughs> and played the Jaws theme, some bitches would be getting out of the water. That's right. I mean, that's how that score. I mean, I remember when I was at my grandmother's place and I was in a swimming pool and I didn't want to get out, my mom would start muttering that theme and I got myself out of that pool yeah. as if I had a rocket sled on my butt. I definitely think, yeah, <laughs> I, I think there's probably a lot of people that know the score that have probably forgotten why they are afraid of that music. Oh, gosh, yeah, because yeah. that, I mean, oh, man. Okay, anything else you want to say about the film before we dive into some of the sequels? Well, we're going to be talking about sequels, also the long-term cultural impact of Jaws in terms of even to this day, what shark films mean to the movie industry. All right. So after Jaws came out, we were introduced to Jaws 2. No. Yes. There was a sequel? There was a sequel. There was a sequel movie and there was a sequel novel, which was based on the screenplay. Well, novelization. Novelization, yeah. Let's there was a novelization written by Hank Searles. Uh what do we want to say about Jaws 2, the movie? Well, Jaws 2 gets a little bit of a bad rap, although I think over in, in recent years people have come around, maybe it's not as bad as some people said. I mean here look, here's the thing. Jaws, the film, destroyed box office records. I mean, freaking destroyed them. I think the box office champ a few years was of all time prior to that, 
And again, let's not worry about adjustments inflation for all inflation that, yeah. and all that. Uh, the Godfather, I think, had made almost $100 million a few years mm-hmm. earlier. Jaws wound up making $260 million. Yep. It destroyed the box office records and reset the, the movie industry. Yeah. It, it, um, they talk the about summer s- industry. Summer movies did not exist. They weren't a thing right. prior to that. Yeah. No, it, Jaws started the summer industry. 1977, Star Wars comes out and blew Jaws out of the water. Yeah. Fox made big public announcements about, yeah, our space movie killed that stupid shark. Yeah. Universal didn't think that was funny. Universal said, oh yeah, we're going to make another shark movie and take R2-D2 and shove it up your butt. Or words to that effect. I wasn't there when the decision was made. Right. So Jaws 2 comes out and it's, from a story standpoint, it's entirely unnecessary because where are you going to go with this? <laughs> I mean, really, it's like, well, the shark was dead. So Jaws 2 is, oh, as another shark. Well, I'll be a son of a gun. What do you know? I guess that could happen. Jaws 2 is an okay movie. It's So for so for, yeah. for people that haven't seen Jaws 2 in a while, so Brody's in it, <laughs> Ellen's yes. in it, the two kids The mayor's in it. in it. The mayor's in it. Right. Obviously, Hooper's dead. Or I, he wasn't dead. No, no, Hooper just could not, not come back because yeah. he was... There's a phone call scene where he can't make it back because he's... Actually, I think at the time Richard Richard Dreyfuss was shooting a goodbye girl and was going to win an Oscar, <laughs> he couldn't care less about Jaws right, too. Right. So yeah, Quint is dead. Quint's both dead. Book That's, and novel, right. or Book and movie. So, so he's so done. The MacGuffin, if you will, is the shark is back and it starts terrorizing people again, and I it's really unmemorable. Well, I mean, the it's an okay, again, if you compare it to the three and four, it's a masterpiece. But, I mean, <laughs> it's it's an okay, okay, let's put it this way. If Jaws is a four to five star film, Jaws 2 is two and a half. I yeah. mean, it's an okay movie. There's some okay scenes in it. It's a good drive-in movie. If you watch it now, one of the, the significances it has, it... It really sets the stage for the teen killing movies, the slasher films. True. In many ways, it's a slasher film because the whole third act's about killing a bunch of dumb teenagers. Yeah, yeah. So it really sets the stage for the Halloween and Friday the 13th movies in years to come. So it holds that distinction. There's some fun scenes in it. Look, there's, there's actually a great reveal scene of the shark. There's a terrific fun scene where the shark pulls a helicopter under the water. Mm-hmm. So it's an okay movie. It lacks everything about the first film. And that's where its problem is. But if you just accept it as, yeah, it's an okay sequel, it's an okay sequel. It's I don't, I would recommend it just, again, as a two and a half star kind of film. So I would recommend for fans of the podcast or fans of this episode... The novel Jaws, obviously the movie Jaws, and yeah. Jaws to the movie, but stop there. Well, okay, I'll say this, though. Jaws to the novelization. Mm-hmm. So, and this is where classic, you know, universal lore comes into place. Jaws to the novelization, the Hank, Hank, Hank Searles wrote it. Hank Searles, yep. Was based on the original draft of Jaws 2, the movie, which did not turn out to be what was filmed. Right. Jaws 2, the novelization, is a much darker novel in which there's a lot more things about the te- amity. They, t- they refer to the original incident as, quote-unquote, the trouble. Yep. 
they the town has basically been destroyed as a result of everything that happened with it uh, so i will say so i'm gonna jump in here yeah. that i would say that is the most interesting part of jaws to the novel which is and, and there's a lot of flaws in that novel but sure. one of the most interesting things is the town is reeling from a catastrophe i went to houston to rebuild some houses after yeah, yeah. You know, like I think it was Hurricane Ike hurricane, or something yeah. like that. You were dealing with people that were healing. Yes. And that's what Jaws 2, the novel, feels like. Many of the people have sold their property because property values right. have plummeted. There's an interesting plot where many of the people in the town, it's like a handful of people that realize there's another shark on the loose. And they start thinking that maybe Brody faked it. Maybe yeah. the first one never. And that's a, that's a cool th- yeah, idea. It's, yeah. It's a, it's cause it's, he was the only witness to what happened right. based on the novel. Right. Exactly. So there was some, so those bits of it were interesting. There is an entire subplot about the mob. So now that where the mob was hinted about both in, it wasn't talked about in the movie at all. It was hinted about in the novel. Now there's very much a mob presence. And which leads to a a kind of gruesome and unnecessary bloodbath mob hit at the end of the novel where like, I don't, I don't want to see mobsters killing people. I want to see shark killing people. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, it's yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was interesting (laughs) from that point of view, but yeah, Brody, I was like a hundred pages in like halfway through the novel. And it's like, Brody still doesn't believe there's a shark out there killing these people. He's, you know, for someone who actually came face to face with a shark, he's, he's very skeptical that a shark could be back in the waters. It just, right. it just didn't work on a lot of levels. Well, the funny thing too, is like with Jaws to the movie with the final version. So obviously Shaw's dead. So you've got like the, almost the heart of the first film gone. Right. Um, Dreyfus couldn't, couldn't or wouldn't come back to play Hooper. As the story goes, Roy Scheider absolutely positively did not want to do Jaws 2 to the point where he actually, he was apparently contractually obligated to do it. He actually went to the trouble of trying to prove he had a mental breakdown <laughs> to get out of having to shoot it, but he still wound up shooting it. Yeah. And by all and accounts. And he's not bad in it. Well, by all accounts, he was a complete pain in the ass on the set. Oh, okay. But whatever. Um, that doesn't show up on the screen if he wants. No, no, he's yeah. fine. He's he's fine in the film. He's yeah. a pro at the end of the day. But again, whatever the final version of the screenplay, which turned out to be basically a, yeah, fine, just throw it out there. We don't care after multiple revisions and when they could not get Spielberg back. But again, it's an okay film. It's a classic. Sadly, it's a classic example of a universal sequel, which is we're going to rely on the on the health of the first film to sucker people into what's going to be a, a downgrade. But yeah, whatever. We'll take the money for it anyway. So here's what I would here's one of the other things I would say that was interesting about the film. Um, so the film, to Stephen East's point, it is a teen bloodbath at the end. The kids being tethered together in an island of rafts. Right, right. As are being attacked by the sharks. And there's some of that in the novel. The way the novel ends, though, is it's a big race. And there's a bunch of people on these little boats and they're like racing around the dinghy. But what's interesting in the novel is that the fog comes in and basically puts visibility at zero. And I think maybe they probably just didn't have the budget or the CGI to do it back then. But if you were to redo Jaws 2... And do the ending as originally conceived of like this shark attacking these boats, these boats filled with teens 
in the fog. That would actually probably be an interesting scene done with the, with the right director. Well, really, they would have been better off of that because the special effects problems with the shark were so evident in part two. Yeah. They might have been better off having him obscure behind fog. Because yeah. there are actually scenes in Jaws 2 where you can... Where the shark opens its mouth and you can see the hydraulic mechanisms <laughs> inside. They really would have been better off with the fog to cover that up. Right. So as bad as Jaws 2 the novel was with... Yeah. Um, it's an okay pot boiler of a, yeah. well, something I have to read while I have a long bowel movement movie book. Sure. <laughs> and apparently... Fine. And I, I don't... Again, I don't do much research on these things. But apparently the guy who... <laughs> Hank Searles, who wrote the novelization, he was, he'd written some other highfalutin nautical thrillers. I'm sure whatever he wrote, probably the novelization for, you know, deep sea squid monster guy. Right. I don't know. Which brings us to Jaws 3. Yes. And so this is the part where I fully admit I have not seen Jaws 3 oh, since I dear. was a young lad. So oh, my have, goodness. I remember it being in 3D, and that's about all I remember. So, Stephen E., whatever you want to say about it, <laughs> feel free. Okay, I'll say this about it. Jaws 3 had... So, <laughs> Jaws 3 came out in 83, 1983, in the midst of the reburgeoning 3D evolution which everything that had the word three in it the number three in it be it friday the 13th part three amityville 3d whatever three had to have be in 3d because it was actually a federal law Mm. probably so jaws 3 which if you look it up on youtube has a magnificent teaser trailer for it so please look that up it's actually a really fun teaser trailer for it it's not a good movie okay it's way better than Jaws 4. Okay. To the point where Jaws 3 is like closer to Gone with the Wind <laughs> than Jaws than it is to Jaws 4. You know, it's an okay... Again, it's not a good movie, mostly from the technical standpoint. It's an okay pot boiler that would have fit in well with the films of the 50s. It would have been a fine fourth creature from the Black Lagoon movie. Richard Matheson, the great sci-fi writer, had a hand in one of the drafts. Oh, nice. Basically, the quick concept is has nothing much to do with the first two films other than one of the Brody kids. Like, let's just say it's, well, two of the Brody kids, one of whom is Dennis Quaid, are now working in a SeaWorld type place. And SeaWorld becomes invaded by a 35-foot-long great white shark. And trouble and and or hilarity ensues of trying to. I think that's the only thing I remember. There's like some ski jet. Well, the shark. The shark attacks some water skiers. Yeah. Um, He attacks a diver earlier on. He basically gets trapped in when he sneaks in through one of the vents being opening, and he gets trapped inside. There's the scene where a great white gets captured that may be the child of this one, and then it dies in captivity. And now we're in the plot going back to Gorgo from the 1950s. And then the whole third act is them trying to get rid of this giant shark. It's an okay storyline. You've got Dennis Quaid, who's kind of your ever-reliable... He's credible in most everything he does. Bess Armstrong, Louis Gossett, Louis Gossett Jr. coming off his Oscar win and trying to prove that was a bad idea. <laughs> um, the, the main problem with Jaws 3D is that what they didn't realize when they wanted to make it in 3D was 3D, especially at the time, inherently made all the visuals murky. 
and when you're shooting things underwater. It was really a hot mess visually. So a lot of what they had to do to compensate for it was a lot of just blue screening and bad visuals, you know, superimposing of things. The, fi the finale of the shark um, attacking this underwater control center is just hilariously bad. Mm. So if you're a fan of semi-entertaining bad movies, Jaws 3, quite frankly, kind of works out okay. Okay. So, on that note, I would say Jaws 3 has never really offended me. It's not a good movie, and we're way, way past the point of it being named in the same breath with the original film. But what the so heck, you're in 1983... Jaws is masterpiece. Yes. Jaws 2 is Two and a half okay. stars, yeah. Jaws 3 is now... One and a half stars. And then we talk about Jaws the Revenge. Right. Do you want me to go there? We have to, you know, we're okay. men of science. We have to, we have to cover it. Let me, let me put this in perspective because I'm as passionate, I've been passionately vocal about Jaws of Revenge as I had Jaws. This is where things get problematic. So everyone bear with me. Jaws, I think whoever is one of the greatest films ever made. It is my favorite movie ever made. I actually consider it's an AFI 100 film. There aren't a whole lot. There are only a hundred of those. I was going to say, there aren't a whole lot. Right? Jaws the Revenge is actually, hold on to your hats for this. Hold on to your tables. Hold on to your Hold on to fins. your drinks. Jaws the Revenge is actually the worst motion picture ever <laughs> made. Let's think about what territory we traveled from an AFI 100 masterpiece to literally... Never mind Plan 9 from Outer Space. Never mind Monos, the Hands of Fate. Never mind Robot Monster. Jaws of Revenge is actually, in my opinion, the worst motion picture ever made. So, I just watched this. You did. I saw you. you and I, I, I ridiculed you for agreeing to sit through it. Right. Um, <laughs> and you read the novelization like I which did. Which was too. painful. Oh, jeez. Yes. Jaws the Revenge is a terrible movie. I yes. will grant you that. However, here's why I will not say <laughs> it is the worst film ever made. Oh, we're getting into this argument again. Okay. <laughs> because it does have Michael Caine in it. And I love Michael Caine. And even if he's only on it on screen for <laughs> those seconds, any any screen time with Michael Caine is better than any movie without Michael Caine. I, I would... I would <laughs> okay, I'm... This is where we're, we're going to get in one of these arguments about which of these things that sucked, sucked more. You right. and I could probably be trying to figure out how to invent cold fusion or cure, cure cancer, but we're going to do this. Yep. I would actually say the fact that Michael Caine's in it draws more attention to how bad it is. Because you've got basically you've got this, this great actor who could not show up for the Oscars to pick up his Oscar for Hannah and his sisters because he was shooting this pile of crap. True story. Yeah. He's in this movie, and it almost draws more attention to, to how bad it is. And you've got, and so and the, they're, they're okay actors. The actors, that yeah. Are so you've got Michael Caine, you've bad. got Lance Husafudge. Exactly. That would be Lance Guest from Last Starfighter. So between Michael Caine, Lance Husafudge, whose name yes. I can't remember, Mario Van Peebles, who's got a bad, you know, not so. He's accent. trying. He's, he's trying. trying. He's but making he's, money. He's, he's doing what he can. Yeah, poor Lorraine Gary, who shouldn't have had a starring role. Yeah, she's technically the star of the show yes. and the novel. And right. she's still a completely underdeveloped character. Not her fault. 
Uh, but uh. you know, if you, it's like it was clear to me that the screenwriter of Jaws: Revenge did not read Jaws the novel at all because there was some interesting backstory they could have brought into that. Um, Jaws, anyway, Jaws: Revenge. It opens up with um, Sean Brody, the youngest of the Brody clan, getting eaten by a shark in the harbor. Apparently, during this whole time, Michael Brody has been living as an oceanographer, studying conch in Nassau. So he comes, buries his brother, and then takes his mom back to the Bahamas with him, where the shark, because it's Jaws of Revenge, actually follows them across the ocean and starts attacking them out there. Luckily... In in the novel, there's a big voodoo element to it. Yes, and there's really some bad writing. There again, there's a, a really unnecessary drug cartel element and right. a DEA and right. Michael Caine's act. The Michael Caine character is actually an undercover DEA. Like all this nonsense right. that you just do not need. Um, but I guess you got to fill out those novel pages with something. Well, oh, let me interrupt. So Lance guests is the Lance. Guest. So okay. now let me. I, I Not saw, Lance who's a fudge. Uh, that might have been his real name. So Lance guests. I actually saw him at Monster Palooza, the convention, a few years ago. Yeah, I I should have gotten his autograph because this this poor man. Here, let me. Here's his legacy. He was in Last Starfighter, which is not a bad, mm-hmm. but he was also. This man was the king of bad sequels. He mm. was in. Jaws Revenge. He was in King Kong Lives, which is a laughably awful movie. He was also in the original Halloween 2 as oh. the stupid bastard who dies by slipping in a puddle of blood and cracking his head open. Oh no. So, I now that I think about it, when I saw him at the convention, I should have given him a hug. Because mm. this poor guy. But, you know, it. but yeah, no, it's not his fault. None of this is his fault. He did his part in a losing cause. Yeah. It's just it's just kind of the story's a freaking mess. Well, it's 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 stupid. I it's, mean, yeah. you know, the whole I mean, at the end of the day, you think could the Universal did they not have a better screenplay for what a fourth jaws film cuz you could have set this in the Farallon Islands, you could have just had another retread. Yeah. You could have done anything, but the whole movie both from a story standpoint and frankly a technical standpoint, here's how bad this movie is. This, I don't know how else to describe it. I saw it on my birthday when it came out in 1987. Your 73rd birthday, right? Yeah, it might have well have been. Yeah. My 73rd birthday in 1987. Mm-hmm. You folks can do the math on that and please send me cards. I'll need them. <laughs> and some depends also, probably. But I saw this in the theater and I was I was I I almost cried when I left the theater. It was so awful. Since then... When it came out on VHS, the edit, the ending had been completely re-edited because the theatrical one has been had been so inco- visually incoherent. They re-edited it on VHS, and it was actually worse. Oh. <laughs> then it came out on DVD, and there was a whole new ending in which one of the characters who we thought died had apparently survived. Then when it aired on TBS, all of that was true. They had reshot some thing or re-edited some things to get rid of some of the more damning shots of the mechanical sharks, you know, wires. And they had added a Rod Serling-like prologue to the top of the film to try to explain everything you were going to see. This movie has been tinkered with to the point where it, it really says Universal knew they had a turd and they've been trying to, to, you know, polish it 
to some degree ever since, and they're like, yeah, wait, deal with it, folks. So you're saying that Jaws sequels didn't do as much business as the Star Wars sequels? No, they did not. Mm. No, they did not. Although a couple of the Jaws sequels I would still watch more than the Star Wars sequels, but that's just me. Yeah. So, kids... You can say you know enough about Jaws or Venn. You you don't need to see this movie. You no, don't you need to what? read the novel. It's... No, no, never mind the novel because you're gonna have to actually like find it. Although I'm sure Stephen Newton would be more than happy I to sell you his copy. Yes. He'll even sign it for you if you really <laughs> want to collect them. No one has written in offering to or trying to take us up on an offer to sign our books back to them. No, seriously, folks, if you want copies of Psycho Two, Psycho House. <laughs> Or Jaws the Revenge, or Jaws 2, we're more than happy to sign them for you. That's right. Just let us know. We'll take care of that for you, because bless your heart for that. And no, I would, I, I strongly encourage people to watch Jaws the Revenge, because you're actually never going to see a film that is so bad on so many levels. You'll learn to appreciate everything a lot more for it. So please watch Jaws the Revenge. I, I, I'm not going to endorse that, Steve. Okay, there, that's, that's But I, here's what I will say. There are better Michael Caine films out there for you. Okay, let's go out on a short limb and say there are there are better Michael Caine. You know what? Here's what that poster should have said. There are better Isn't Michael Caine films. He did The Island. He too. did The Island. And that was a Benchley novel, was yes, it, it not? Yes, it was. And it's, so yes. see The Island instead. Well, I haven't seen The Island in a while. That's Let right. Me, it may not have aged uh, well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. you. In fact, you literally cannot find that in any formally released format. I have a copy, but you can't. It was never released otherwise. Interesting. All right. We're going to take a break here. And then when we come back, we'll talk about whatever else we want to talk about. The legacy. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Jaws. So, Stephen, I see in front of you, you have a surprisingly long list. And I hope you're not going to go through every element on that list. But tell me what you've got in front of you. Well, let me just... (laughs) We just had a great on-air conversation about comparing Jaws to Waterworld and how the difference between greatness and utter failure in the public eye is a razor's edge. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it is an interesting thing, and we can go on this later, but, you know, the Jaws... So Jaws was... The original Jaws production that I mentioned was a tremendously problematic production. Turned out what it was. But what Jaws did was it really just... Uh, it launched a whole new genre or relaunches genre of the whole man versus nature, mm-hmm. the monster genre. And, you know, and it's uh, almost 50 years since we've not had a film that really came close. We've had a few, I would argue that, well, alien a couple years later, really, you can make an argument. It was right in the same class. Yep. I don't think it's as good as jaws, but it's in the ballpark. Yeah. We can have it in the same conversation, obviously. I'd say of the more modern films, I think revenant with not Brad Pitt, um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Well, I love that movie. I don't know that I can, but yeah, let's go with that. I would also say there's some location man versus elements. Sure. Well, actually that's a good point. I would also make an argument for, a film that should have gotten better notice was The Ghost in the Darkness mm. with a Michael Caine and Val Kilmer about a true story based on lions. Yeah, it, I remember uh, seeing that. It was actually not a bad thriller with a couple issues, but it did the best of having a monster, a monster, man versus monster storyline, but having some okay characters too. Right. So I'd give it credit for that. But mostly there hasn't been a lot of great equivalent um, as far as shark films go. 
Well, okay, sometimes the discussion has come up, why have we not had a Jaws remake, right? Mm-hmm. That's come up, and I'm sure it's been discussed. I think partially because Spielberg has enough, sort of has enough control over the title that they aren't able to screw with it very easily. Apparently he was okay with Jaws the Revenge, but he might have had a yeah. nap that day. But I, I think Universal doesn't want to risk things enough to anger him since I think he's still enough of a figurehead since he kind of kept Universal in business for 30 years. But I don't think they have to, because as it's turned out over the last 20 years, shark movies without having the benefit of the Jaws title have done pretty good business. Yeah. The Meg, the Meg did a, based on a novel. Right. Did a, did, it might have actually made more money than Jaws, if you really think about it. It could have, yeah. It was a huge success. Things like the two 47 meters down films did good business. The Shallows, which I actually think is a really, really good film up to the last 10 minutes, mm-hmm. did good business. So shark films still make a lot of money. But what's interesting, too, is that what else has come out of that? So normally, when we've talked about these things... As I'm Before you my, get into your list, yes. so speaking of the Meg... Yes. The Meg... The, Meg the, 2 starts shooting now. Yeah. Meg actually appears in all three of the Jaws novels I've read. Yeah, it's, it's which is kind of interesting because it's like, oh yeah, this great white. You should have seen the Meg though. But let's get back to this great white. So I think even back in the seventies, they knew that there was a story to be told with that Meg shark. Well, and some folks online have suggested that maybe Bruce, quote unquote, Bruce the shark in the first film might have been a baby Meg mm, instead of a great white. Okay, but shark films have been big business over the last really since Jaws. And I think really over the last 20 years, they've still done good business. And I mean, obviously, Shark Week on Discovery Channel has always been a big thing. But, you know, we've had the Meg, the Meg, we've had the 47 meters down. I'm going to read off a list of films that have come out over the last 20 20 years or so, most of which last 10 years. Okay. And I'm going to read these off. And these all have been movies that have been released that without Jaws. That is a long list. Are you really going to read that? I'm going to read them quickly. Okay. So, and I want you to chime in when you feel passionate about nope, these Nope, I want you to get through this list. So, of course, we know about the Sharknado films. Of course. Which there have been six. And Sharknado 2, I rank among the top five greatest shark movies ever made. I'm just putting that out there. There's also been the three Sharktopus movies. <laughs> and I'm actually a big fan of Sharktopus, more than Sharknado. Okay. Just don't need to know. We've had the three Mega Shark movies. Four Shark, I'm sorry, four Mega Shark movies. Mm-hmm. Which started with the infamous Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. Because that was a thing. This is a long list, brother. You've got to step it up. No, no, we're, we're fine. Okay. We had Two Headed Shark Attack, which then led to three, four, five, and shark, Six Headed Shark Attack. Okay. We had Super Shark, Psycho Shark, Ghost Shark. Sand Shark, Snow Shark, Swamp Shark, Sky Sharks, House Shark, Mississippi River Sharks, <laughs> Ozark Sharks, Shark Lake. It seems like they probably could have combined. Anyway, That's right. Toxic Shark. Well, that was, yeah. Not to be topped by Virus Shark. Hmm? Atomic Shark. Sure. Zombie Shark. Writes itself. Dam shark. Dam is in D A M shark. Okay. 
Because in that movie, the sharks are actually making dams out of people. Okay. Yes. And actually, it's not the worst film I've seen. Sharks of the Corn. Because if you really went back and looked at Stephen King's Children of the Corn, you're thinking, this probably movie probably would have been better with sharks in it. Really, if you think about it. And I don't disagree with that. Sharkenstein. Mm-hmm. Jurassic Shark, which kind of sort of sure. makes sense. yeah. But I'm not sure I can explain the shark exorcist. But I can explain, because I actually did enjoy this movie... Santa Jaws. Santa Jaws. Yes. But I don't know that I can really justify Jersey Shore shark attack any more than Malibu shark attack. Then we go into Empire of the Sharks, Planet of the Sharks, which is like kind of a low-budget version of Waterworld, actually. Mm-hmm. Shark Island. Yeah. Ouija Shark. Ouija? Like Ouija board? Yes, Ouija oh, Shark. Okay. Because, you know, why wouldn't you? Sure. Nightmare Shark. You had Exorcist Shark earlier, so... We did, and again, I, you could have argued that these could have been combined into the same movie. And did you mention a ghost shark yet? I there was a ghost shark. Okay, that's what, yeah. Which includes a scene, and I'm not even kidding you, where a kid goes down one of those water, one of those slip and slides, and at the end of it, the ghost shark appears and swallows him. So let me get this right. We had ghost shark. Yes, we did. We had vampire shark. We have not had vampire shark. Oh, I got to write that in. No, we have not had no, We that haven't had vampire yet. Okay, but we've had Sharkenstein. Yes, of course. And I'm sure we've had a werewolf shark in there as well. We've not, had zombie sharks. Not as set. We've had zombie, zombie sharks. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. We need were so, sharks. There's still room for that, okay. right? There's Ouija Shark, Nightmare Shark, Raiders of the Lost Shark. <laughs> you probably saw that one, didn't you? I... You might have caught it somewhere, flipping channels. Right. Because if not, you might have caught Shark Swarm. Shark Swarm. But actually, one of the ones that was a better one, I think because it had Lorenzo Lamas in it, because why wouldn't it be good? Sharks in Venice. Sure. You had the recently released Noah's Shark. Then you had Avalanche Sharks. Which seems like it could have been part of a snow shark, but whatever. Leading to Trailer Park Shark with Tara Reid. Oh. And, of course, Shark Encounters of the Third Kind. Shark Encounters of the... But no vampire shark yet. No, although... Odd, no, there has not been... I need to look... I'm sure it's in production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scary thing is an unusual number of these productions included Eric Roberts in them. So, okay. draw what you will from that. But the point is, sharks in movies are big business in whatever way you can incorporate them. So, I think you you had advice for young filmmakers earlier about watching Jaws and Rocky, but really, just throw any shark in the title and you'll probably get picked up on... Well, not kidding. I mean, sci-fi. seriously. No, seriously. If you've got... Because obviously, we've got the CG to a point where there's enough generic... CG shark modeling, you can do something with it. And I mean, what last week, Requin, which with Elisa Silverstone came out, which is getting some publicity and whatever else is a, ma- a mainstream shark film. Shark films are still coming out. You can't go, if you were a young filmmaker and you had this technology or anything close to it, you have an idea for a shark film, freaking go for it because there's still a market for it. Vampire shark hasn't been done. It's. I, yeah, I mean, really, go for it. You yeah. could, if you pitch that in an elevator, you've got a better chance of almost any idea I have for like a good movie. That's right. You know, this is, but again, this goes back to number one: sharks are still big box office, no matter what. 
notwithstanding, like I said, the Meg and the 47 meters and the shallows. And they don't have like shark or jaws in the title. No, even Shark Knight, which was, I think, one of the better guilty pleasure 3D movies that came out over the last few years. So sharks are still good box office. You, it's hard to go wrong with them, especially in the summer. So Jaws has laid the foundation for that. Well, there you are, folks. You've got uh, fertile ground to till there with, with shark movies. Anything else we want to say about the culture of the lasting effects on Jaws? I think we need more shark movies. <laughs> okay, yeah, it seems to be a dearth of them. Well, here's what's sad about this. When I was researching this list that I just read off ad nauseum, if I may say, I was looking up a few of these titles on Amazon, some of which are now in collections of, you know, five shitty titles for a dollar. I looked at these and I opened it up and I looked at the top and it said, Stephen Payne, last purchased on. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly I have quite a few of these, whether I remember them or not. <laughs> That's funny. All right, let's do a little housekeeping yes. and then we will get going. <laughs> And we're back. So we did receive an email in between our last episode of Psycho and this episode. And it comes to us from James Newton, who... Who's that son of a gun? Yeah, he's my younger brother. So I guess... Is he? he if I ever met him? Right in as opposed to call us. But did here you, it is. Did you have a younger brother? Have you talked about him I before? I do. So it says, gents, I wanted to thank you all for your podcast with Black Ink Red Film. With work, life, kids, pandemic, I'd fallen behind. But I recently listened to your Psycho podcast which actually inspired me to buy the Blu-ray set. Also just finished The Mummy, Dracula, Frankenstein, and The Thing. You guys cracked me up. So happy you guys created birth. A few thoughts. He's going to go into a few thoughts now, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but his first one is <laughs> Bubba Hotep is amazing. And yes, we I agree with that. that. We all yes. love Bubba Hotep. Stand by that one. I guess we talked about villain matchups. So he actually writes in with a villain matchup. His suggestion is... Norman Bates would be a good villain matchup versus Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. He'd considered mm-hmm. pitting him against Dr. Lecter himself, but, you know, he's unstoppable. I guess that depends on how deep we want to go with this villain matchup. Because if we if we only had like a eight-person eight tier tournament, yep. Buffalo Bill might not make that cut. If we went, I don't know, 16 or more, yeah, I could see that. Depends. I, I see his point, and it would be interesting. Depends how how broad we want to make this tournament. Yeah, I think the point he's making here is like the similarities between Buffalo Bill oh, and well, Norman Bates, and I think Buffalo that's... Bill was absolutely based on Norman Bates, who was based on Ed Gein, right? And Leatherface fits into theirs too. So, I, I you know, I'll just say this, and I'll just I'm going to say this right now: Silence yep. of the Lambs was a big budget version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. I, well, yeah, that's probably a whole other thing in and of itself because that was actually one of those things where I read the book before the movie came out. And so mm-hmm. I think the movie is very, the movie Silence of the Lamb is very faithful to the novel Silence of the Lambs. And I don't think the novel Silence of the Lambs was trying to mimic Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but maybe Ted Demi, the filmmaker, was. So. I will. We'll both, never know. Both happened after the movie. And well, let's put it this way. Both happened after the Ed Gein murders. Yeah. So yeah. Ed Gein, I don't want to say bless his heart because screw him because he was a horrible person. But right, right. He influenced almost everything that happened in modern modern slasher fiction That's to right. this day. 
Lastly, I thought Mr. Payne really shined on the Thing episode. That's true. He had not read or seen the Thing. Blah, blah, blah. We go and talk about the Thing. The Thing's a great movie. Everybody should see the Thing. Everybody should see every version except the the last version of the Thing. So the, the John Carpenter film version of the Thing, please watch that. That is a top 20 great thriller of all time, horror sci-fi film of all time. But again, I totally recommend the, the 1951, 19, The Thing from Another World. You know, I was going to mention that earlier on in the episode. I think mm-hmm. the Steven Spielberg, the use of the barrels and the theme in Jaws right. really reminded me of the Geiger counter yeah. building tension in The Thing from oh, Another gosh, World. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, so. these are, you can't go wrong with these movies. They owe, they owe a lot to each other. The thing is anything, yeah, original thing, the John Carpenter thing are both magnificent bits of work. They all have legacy to Jaws. They have legacy to the greatest thrillers of all time. Yep. Please watch them. Please, you know, support them. They deserve it. And speaking of things you should watch, Mr. James Newton closes out his letter with, and I really didn't even know who Hammer Films were prior to the podcast series. We'll be looking for them to go on sale on Amazon. Mm. I already picked up the Universal Monster set, which I also picked up. That Blu-ray Universal Monster set has been fabulous. I'm kind of surprised the original Phantom of the Opera is not on it. It's got the uh, Claude Rains version on it, but um, not Um. on Cheney. Maybe that's not universal. I don't know. There's something about the silent films that may be a problem or just they decide they don't want to include silent films. Yeah. Yeah. And we had talked a little bit at some point about whether or not we would, we could do an episode or some discussions on Hammer versus Universal. So the Hammer films, good luck getting a collection on them. More of them individually are getting Blu-ray releases. So there's still some, you know, they're not willing to give those up as a whole quite easily, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I would say this as far as like, I love both. I love Hammer and I love Universal. Both. Mm -hmm. I would say this. This is how I would summarize things from my childhood and from the current things. The Universal takes on the classic monsters or things you would watch on Saturday afternoon. Or creation of them. (laughs) Or creation of them. Yeah. The Hammer films are things you watch after midnight on Creature Mm. Features. Because they are more, they are a little more intense and more adult oriented than the Universal ones. Yeah, I just see, I I agree with that. Yep. And but they're both great. I would I would say as far as like which is better, it's a draw because you go back and forth. You know, depends Chris, on your taste. Yeah, it depends on your taste, and they both do a fantastic job within their own realm. So if you're familiar with one versus the other, please go research the other. You can't go wrong with either. I've I've I tormented myself with this over the years, but I, I've turns out I love the Universal films. I love the Hammer films. It's hard to pick one versus the other. It, it they're does. both incredible. They're both incredible. I think the Brits just had a different aesthetic with their horror. Um, like I said, I yes. rewatched I rewatched uh, Legend of Hell House a couple weeks ago, and mm-hmm. that is about as good a haunted house movie as ever has been put on screen oh yeah oh yeah it's it's just it and it it's it has that aesthetic like you said that english aesthetic well you got um, yeah i mean the the tales from the crypt those original oh yeah yeah well the, i mean universal owned the 30s through the f- late 40s hammer took over the 50s through the mid 60s yeah yeah so that's how you look at it and again it's a matter of what you're looking for for horror but if you ask me but one or the other don't pick one go for both Yep. Take the time to watch both. 
Right. Christopher Lee and Bella Lugosi. Watch both of them. Well, thank you, Hack James Dan, for the letter. Uh, Who's this guy again? <laughs> I don't know him. Do I know him? Send my... <laughs> give your kids hugs and kisses from Uncle Stevens. <laughs> wait a minute. Who's yeah. this guy? Oh, that guy. Yeah. Oh, wait. This is a ringer, isn't it? That's right. Oh, man. Um, anything else we want to say before we close out this episode? Well... Again, thank you all for continuing to follow us. This has been an episode of Passion. I hope it came through. We encourage you to just go ahead and watch these films. Keep keep the legacy alive of all these things. My concern has always been that as we get older, as time goes on, that we that people will forget about Jaws. I don't want Jaws to ever be forgotten about. I don't want Jaws to ever die. I want all of us to keep its memory and its legacy alive. So please... Continue to do what you can to help it stay alive because it needs to be. It needs to be regarded as what it is. I th- I think Jaws is in safe hands. I don't Jaws. know. I I think it's going to be just fine. Thank everybody again. We uh, we always appreciate letters, comments on Facebook, whatever. We're on Black Ink Red Film at gmail.com. I believe if things go at current course and speed, we'll be doing my passion project for the next episode. I've now bought 17 copies of the Omen films or the Omen books, so um, I'm looking forward to that. It's a toss-up between that and the and Killdozer, but <laughs> I think we're probably yeah the Omen count count on the Omen. Yes. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye bye. A special thank you to Corey Newton for reading from Peter Benchley's Jaws. You've been listening to Black Ink Red Film with your hosts Stephen Newton and Stephen E. Payne. Music was created by Matthew Murdoch. Please send any comments, questions, or requests to blackinkredfilm at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening.